Hey guys, this is Stowe Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and I wanted to let you know about an exciting event we have coming up on September 23rd in Nashville, Tennessee. One of Ron Paul's favorite lines was, truth is treason and the empire of lies. Americans around the country are waking up to this reality, war across the globe, regulating free speech at home, printing trillions of dollars. The regime accepts no limits to its power. Speaking on this topic, we all have brave truth tellers, including Ted Carpenter, Michael Rechtenwald, Jonathan Newman, and many more. Again, this is on September 23rd in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee. You can find more about this event and get your tickets at Mises.org slash Nashville 23. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin, executive editor with the Mises Institute. And with me, of course, is my co-host, Tho Bishop. And we're going to talk today about China, uh, specifically a couple of issues on China. Now, as far as things like Taiwan and the military prowess in China, I recommend you go over and listen to the War, Economy, and State podcast I do uh, with Zachary Yost. We're going to talk about mostly economic issues here and issues related to maybe some Chinese demographics and just where China is uh, geopolitically as a result of its economy and focus a little bit more on that. And I think maybe two of the main uh, issues we're going to look at here is that we need to be much more well-informed about where China's actual situation is in terms of its overall economic strength. And since so many, and it's not just conservatives, but since so many conservatives, but also just regime hawks in general, because there's certainly something, there's nothing uh, peace-loving about the Biden administration, uh, which has largely continued just Trump's policies on China, is uh, this I, we're, we're being told all the time that China is this growing monster and it's going to surpass the United States in every way and the United States needs to just step up and really just start asserting itself and China will rule the world unless the United States uh, takes major military action to ensure that that doesn't happen. And this all assumes a certain story about China's economy uh, and China's uh, growth, China's demographics much of which is totally inaccurate and that China is actually much, much weaker than you're being told by the, the China hawks. Uh, but the, the other issue too there is that uh, China's economy is also not about to implode and collapse and uh, basically cause massive instability. There's no evidence of that happening. Uh, either. They're not on the edge of a famine. It's not a North Korea type of situation. Uh, but whatever success China has, it's a result of the fact that they've embraced markets to some extent since the 1970s. And what you'll often hear from people who uh, are, they, they don't understand uh, economic development. They're, they're pro-Keynesian maybe in many cases. They don't understand the true benefits of the market economy. They seem to think that China's maybe discovered some third-way model, some special model, that, that China has, has cracked the nut of economic development and that they've, 
they don't need free markets, but have instead come up with a, a China-only model that works better than everybody else. And that's why China has grown so much, and that's why China is so important now. None of that's true. Uh, whatever success China has has just been that they've become less socialist, and to the extent that they are now pivoting uh, maybe under Xi to more socialism will only damage China and make China worse off. And that's all there is to it. The more capitalist China becomes, the better China is uh, in terms of its economic growth and freedom. And the more socialist it is, the more it damages its own economy. And that is really the story of what's happened in China uh, since uh, the late 1970s when Deng Xiaoping took over and opened up the economy. So uh, let's just look at it a little bit in uh, those terms. And I think I'll just set the stage with the overall changes that's been going on there. So in the late 1970s, uh, you finally had the old hardcore communist guard go away. And of course, if you know even just the basic outline of China history. You know that the communists won in 1949, and then they started imposing hardcore communism. That is total central planning, uh, a, a series of bizarre and horrific attempts at totally socializing the economy like the Great Leap Forward. And you could just go, you could name countless stupid ideas that the regime had during this period, like the Four Pests Program which was this idea to save agriculture by getting rid of the four pests, which were rats and sparrows and flies. Uh, and there was a fourth one too, uh, which <laughs> I can't recall at the moment where we were going to exterminate all of these and then our, this, this would end their attacks on our uh, agricultural capability because sparrows eat grain and rats eat grain and all that stuff. And, of course, what they ended up doing was actually destroying their agricultural capacity more because they didn't realize, as even I, I'm not an ornithologist, but even I know that sparrows eat insects, and it didn't occur to them that the sparrows were eating the insects uh, that were ruining many of the crops. So they actually ruined their agriculture uh, even worse by killing all the sparrows, which was this bizarre thing about like the entire Chinese population running around banging pots all the time to scare off the sparrows and killing them all and trapping them all and breaking all their eggs and stuff. It was like a sort of like COVID fever where the regime told everybody to do something and they just did it. And that was the sort of collectivism that was going on in China in the 50s and 60s, just absolutely bonkers sort of stuff to reshape the whole world and the economy. And you know what? It ended in a massive famine that killed millions of people, one of the worst famines of all time. And the Chinese economy just sank deeper into poverty and didn't go anywhere. And then it was only finally in the late 1970s, Deng Xiaoping comes in. He's like, okay, we're going to open up the economy somewhat, right? Obviously, we're not going to give up our control as Communist Party of the regime, but we're going to allow... Uh, some industrialization that, that has some nominal private property involved. We're going to stop forcing uh, all of these communal farms in the West where the poverty is the worst. And we're just going to start letting in some trade and letting the economy function somewhat like a normal economy. And then the Chinese economy just completely took off. And then by the 1990s, it really took off. And in the early 2000s, the same continued. That's when we started to hear all this talk about how China was really going to uh, surpass the United States and it was becoming this big, important country now. And its economy was soon going to rival everybody else. So 
what we're now encountering now, the news is that now that she is maybe looking at reining in uh, a lot of those freedoms that had gradually grown during the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. That's been real tentative so far. We haven't seen any massive evidence of that so far. It's It's been stated as a goal of uh, that the regime wants to take advantages of the benefits of central planning and that there's, uh, there's too much capitalism and that sort of thing. Uh, but we need to wait and see on that to see just how much that uh, is going to take hold. Because, of course, it would be wrong to say that the Chinese economy is in any way laissez-faire. It's absolutely a mixed economy. It's Keynesianism on steroids in many ways. And so that's how we should think of the economy uh, in China now. It's, it's just not capitalist, but it's not centrally planned either. And to the extent that there's capitalism, that's how the regime, that's how the people, the regular people of China are benefiting. Um, so that's just the general context of China uh, and uh, can give us some insights then into why the economy is doing well or not. And so really we have to keep that in mind when we're talking about uh, China overall. But so I, I, how would you describe the narrative now about China and, and what are some of the things we need to address most in terms of how they're getting it wrong? Well, I think one of the biggest blind spots that you see, and I think it's particularly true on the right, is kind of this built-in assumption that Chinese politicians are just inherently smarter than our politicians. Now, you look at, you know, a lot of the figures in D.C. and, you know, a, a average kindergarten class is smarter than some of our leaders in D.C. right now. So I, I get that. that that dynamic might be more true in, in 2023 than it might have been um, not that long ago, um, which is not a, a feather in the cap of the, the previous political class in D.C. But the problem is, is that assumption kind of plays into this broader respect, if you will, for um, the assumption that this Chinese mixed economy, again, as you were saying, creates a model for future governance. And some of this has played out with, in the left, right, you have the famous uh, clips from you know, people in the New York Times and, and people associated with the Biden administration, or the Obama administration back in, in the early, uh, in 2008, 2009, you know, talking about, man, if only we had that sort of one-party state that China has it'd be so much easier to address issues like climate change and these big overarching goals, right? So you have kind of a, a bias on both the left and the right and the intellectual class that, hey, China's either smarter at this stuff and so they can make some of these lofty plans work in ways that our leaders just are not capable of doing or that the more one-party political system um, can drive up enough the state capacity to achieve these big things that are you know, broken, fractured political environment within DC just simply can't do in our modern day and age. And I think that you can see, you know, when you listen to some of the political talk that comes out of Davos, when you see it, um, you, you, you see just the way that DC has become increasingly um, executive agency driven um, with the legislature having, you know, kind of Co you know, you're delegating their duties increasingly to regulatory officials. You know, you, you can kind of see that specter of people in power wanting to be more like China. It's interesting though, because if we look back at what made China so successful within the modern age, some of the differences that China has to us are worth noting. 
Um, one of the biggest things is they're very small um, welfare system relative to the West. Um, you know, you do not have massive uh, subsidies going to, you know, the, the, the at-risk populations and the like, which drives a lot more participation in the workforce, things like that. And this carries over with she, who famously grew up in a cave in very, you know, uh, uh, austere conditions. And he sort of has this, you know, hard times create strong men sort of mentality to him. And so even with this pivot towards um, a, a more heavy-handed approach under she, you don't have it corresponding with sort of massive uplifting of sort of so social safety net programs, which you would normally expect to hear or see with a socialist communist state, right? And so this is where you have certain people that analyze the Chinese economy sort of object to the, the way that the communist label is used descri describing China because some of these, again, this, this, this wealth transfer dynamic isn't really part of the Chinese society. And so part of that, you've seen uh, a very strong savings culture within China. Now, in recent years, you know, if we look back at um, post-2008 China, and one of my favorite resources for this is a book I recommend anyone listening that is interested in China, and I, I recommend everyone to be interested in China because I think it's a very important just global economic um, topic, is uh, Denis McMahon's China's Great Wall of Debt. Um, Denny McMahon was an Australian-born uh, Wall Street Journal reporter that was there in China from like 2008 to 2018. He saw the changing within the Chinese economy from some of the strengths that kind of made it this threat. And again, it's worth noting, you know, prior to 9-11 even, um, kind of the Fed's dabbling with some extreme monetary conditions, um, you know, lower interest rates and the like, it wasn't simply a result of the dot-com bubble busting and some of the pressures in the you know, late 90s, early 2000s, but it was a fear of China importing deflation into the West that created some of these proactive conditions that end up you know, manifesting themselves in the housing bubble and the like. Um, this was something that Bernanke was very concerned about. And so after 2008, though, in the Chinese economy, what we've seen is this massive, this historic, you know, from, from a global perspective, this historically unprecedented scale of credit expansion. Um, and a big part of that is within the shadow banking sector. Um, you know, if you look at, for example, the Chinese stock market, uh, the Chinese stock market never got back to where it was prior to 2000, 2008 because a lot of like retail investors, they got burned in the Chinese stock market. Um, and a lot of their savings went into shadow banking investments because you, you had a low interest rate yields, right? So you weren't, you, you weren't getting much from traditional bank deposits. Um, it's also interesting, China's actually adapted, uh, 2014, 2015, I believe, they actually adopted um, bank deposit insurance for the first time, which was kind of them kind of responding to concerns about growing instability within financial markets and, and financial institutions. So a lot of this money ended up being channeled into shadow banking. And so these shadow banking accounts were promising far greater yields and so when we look at some of the current stresses going on right now, we see these large development uh, companies that were building up all of these ghost cities, um, you know, satisfying certain political quotas and the like, that, you know, a lot of that investment was being fueled by deposits made within the shadow banking sector that were then being doled out into these various things. And so when we have these collapses of these large developmental companies, it's not simply, you know, the, the assumption of sort of government backstop isn't, you know, there, there has always been for a long time, there was this presumption 
that Beijing would not allow these large companies to fail. And now what we've seen you know, since 2017, 2018, has been a growing willingness to allow large companies to fail. And so the consequence that that is having on these shadow banks that have made all these loans that are not being proving profitable over time is that this creates a, a very real um, stress to the social, social order within China. Um, one of the other aspects that has allowed for Chinese prosperity has been regionalism. A lot of respect, you know, there's been a lot of control, you know, in spite of what we might think as a one-party state being, you know, very closely centrally planned by, you know, a top-down model from Beijing with edicts going out. Uh, for the most part, China has had a lot of success in allowing for a lot of differences in various regions to create different policies. Um, during COVID, particularly later stage COVID, uh, we saw a far more heavy-handed approach being brought down um, which led to again shuttling down of major industries and the like. Um, you know, people. You look at areas like Shanghai um, that had a, a, a you know some some very brutal crackdowns, and those were kind of moving away from this regionalized model of things. Um, we can also look at kind of in growing um, the more authoritarian aspects that people are talking a lot more about. Um, you know, we, we, concerns about the social credit system being one thing, but increasing restrictions on the press, um, which are, again, relatively later stage, 2014, 2015, is when they really started cracking down on, you know, saying bad things about the economy and the like. And so the current regime has broken away from a lot of the aspects that made China this great geographical power. Um, there's a third dynamic to this, obviously, with just the concerns over demographics and the like stemming from you know, long, you know, uh, long-standing one-child policies and concerns about overpopulation and China kind of taking some of the, the unfortunately, the, the Western-pushed myths out there about overpopulation and the like. Um, and so these various stresses combined with a credit expansion environment that is having to be wound down. Um, and there's, there's acknowledgement that it has having to be wound down. Um, this is why you're starting to seeing great concerns about future Chinese growth. And when we consider the extent to which the global economy relied upon Chinese economic growth to make up for a lot of the slack from underperforming countries abroad, right? The, 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 Western, the, the West growth after the Great Recession has not been particularly strong. America you know, had a very weak recovery from the financial crisis. A lot of the global economy was supported by these China, this, this Chinese economy, bolstered by this credit expansion, both in their traditional banking system and increasingly, um, much, large, much largely, uh, in a much larger capacity, the shadow banking sector. These are very real struggles that, you know, the, the regime of China has not really had to deal with in a long time because they've been able to kind of kick down the can with very Keynesian style policies. And so, you know, a lot of the, I think, saber rattling from the right, uh, viewing China as, you know, the biggest threat America faces since really the Soviet Union, um, you know, these are all kind of predicated with assumptions that Chinese growth is going to continue and continue. And I think that that story is, is, is an incorrect one. Um, and that is, you know, so, so some of the calculations there that are being made by policy, Washington policymakers, assuming the inevitability of Chinese tri uh, you know, triumphs, um, you know, are, are very dangerous because they are, you know, 
fueling the response to what China should be. And in many ways, again, if, if you are an authoritarian regime, nothing is a better, you know, nothing's better to solve internal domestic strife than a foreign war. And so if you have a struggling you know, jobs market for young military-aged males, well, what better way to do than put them in the military and you know, go have them die um, to take them off the streets and to um, you know, make sure that you're not going to have any sort of internal revolutions, which China has a long history of. Right? You know, China is very, very concerned about social unrest because they've seen their regime in power topple many times throughout Chinese history from having um, internal domestic concerns and again, without that social safety net, that complacency dynamic that you might have in a country like the U.S. is, is, is you know, there's, that, that fat just isn't there. Um, and so, you know, in, in many ways, we are provoking a situation that if you simply allow the Chinese economy to kind of rest on its own fundamentals, might address a lot of the concerns that you get from, you know, American Chinese policy hawks. This is a point that Michael Beckley makes in his book, Unrivaled, with the subtitle, Why America Will Remain the World's Sole Superpower, is he notes that China spends a lot of money and time and effort uh, on dealing with domestic unrest, that uh, it's, it's a very large, diverse country. It's, uh, it's not uh, just a serene the way that many outsiders might assume it is. And so the regime has to spend a lot of time on dealing with political divisions, not to mention numerous border problems where, that, where it has to deal with neighbors. I mean, it has very costly upkeep costs um, that are involved. And there's not a whole lot of surplus that can be spent on that. If we look at uh, per capita GDP, right? A country that has very high per capita GDP has lots of extra resources uh, to spend on various projects and wars and all of that. Building new bases, putting down any sort of insurrections. The, the government can draw upon a vast pool of resources without completely impoverishing uh, the population. And in the U.S., the per capita GDP is about $80,000, um, whereas in China, it's 13700 I mean, this is, this is not even in the same league uh, as the United States or the West in general. And the U.S., of course, isn't even at the top. Uh, your really rich countries like Switzerland and Norway are up at over 100000 uh, But looking at that dichotomy, any sort of major war... Uh, would be a problem for the Chinese. What they need is enough of, uh, like the U.S., right? I mean, the U.S. regime does this all the time. They need a war that's enough of a distraction to be politically useful uh, and uh, to throw its weight around internationally. But you need to pick on countries that uh, can't really fight back. And uh, that's something the Chinese regime needs uh, is. But their choices are very limited in terms of who their neighbors are and the fact that the U.S. meddles in most of China's neighbors. And so those options are limited, but certainly that would benefit them significantly so long as the war isn't incredibly costly and ends up driving much of the population, of course, into poverty. And given how low their per capita GDP is, this is still a poor country. I, I mean, it's, yeah, it's at the higher end of that. You, it's, uh, you could call it at this point a middle-income country. Nevertheless, uh, yeah, it's not like the Democratic Republic of the Congo or something, someplace that's a complete disaster. But 
this is by no means a rich country. It's not even up there with Eastern Europe. And so that is something that constrains the regime considerably. And their era of peak growth demographically is, is most likely over. Let's look at where they are in terms of their aging population. A point Beckley makes is that, look, this, China is one of the oldest, most disabled countries in terms of they have vast numbers of people that are very elderly and getting more elderly. Many, many workers, uh, high percentages of workers are disabled and on disability, which, of course, are very small payments in China. As you noted, their welfare state is not particularly robust. Um, because they mostly deal with poverty by giving people government jobs uh, and guaranteeing employment on some level. So if you can't work, it's, it's not like a bunch of easy money that you can get. Plus, there's a lot of social pressure to, to contribute and to work. Um, and people don't like to see freeloaders in their local communities. And looking at all of that, you can see, okay, we've got an aging population uh, we've got a declining population, even at this point. Uh, the, the, the numbers that come out of China in terms of its census are pretty sketchy. I mean, statistical data out of China is never really all that reliable. I mean, it's not reliable out of the U.S. regime, but it, given that there are a few outlets for challenging the data in China, uh, it's even worse. And uh, that's true on crime. Uh, it's true on prison statistics. Uh, these numbers about how China has a rock bottom homicide rate, I find very uh, questionable uh, in terms of violent crime as well. Uh, but let's look at their population. China says, oh, our population is 1.4 billion and slowing. But a lot of China experts have really questioned that. Uh, Reuters recently, for example, looks at a, um, a China expert in Wisconsin, at the University of Wisconsin, Fuxian Yu, uh, Fuxian Yi, who notes that uh, he thinks that the real population of China is really more like 1.2 billion and has been declining since 2018. Well, the thing about having a declining population and an elderly population is that well, those people aren't particularly productive, and you don't have, they're past their productivity peak, and you don't have new people coming in then to produce uh, enough wealth that can uh, keep these elderly uh, from descending into poverty. And that's a big problem that the country is going to face. It's different when you're Japan. Japan got rich before it got old. And that's very different from China, which is getting old before it got rich. So China has the surplus wealth necessary for automation, uh, for bringing in uh, immigrants. And there are immigrants that want to move to Japan. Lots of Korean workers there, for example. Uh, Westerners generally don't integrate very well. Uh, but certainly there is a demand to come in and become a worker in Japan, and the Japanese, uh, they do welcome that in many cases. However, China, uh, <laughs> there's not a lot of people clamoring to move uh, to China. They do not have a large uh, influx of immigration. And so they're just looking at a situation where overall wealth production is going to decline as the age of their workers increases, and the overall population is declining, which also points to geopolitical problems as well. It's, it becomes harder and harder to produce the sort of wealth and the military prowess necessary as your population is old and getting smaller. So all of these are the sorts of things that 
uh, a lot of China hawks are kind of schizophrenic about in the sense of on the one, they do this with Russia too. On the one hand, this country's an implacable threat and they're gonna be rolling through the rest of the world conquering things left and right. But then on the other hand, it's a, they're, they're screwing everything up and they're getting really old uh, and they have a massive demographic crisis on their hands. So which is it? Uh, the truth is, is that, yeah, they do have a demographic crisis on their hands. Um, they are likely to see major slowing in production and wealth, again, without necessarily a major implosion. And then uh, the, the what's not true in that narrative is that they're going to be rolling through the rest of the world, conquering things left and right. And anything said by the Americans in terms of, oh, look how diabolical all these Chinese people are trying to open a base in Latin America. Yeah, one base in Latin America. How many bases do the United States have encircling uh, China and Japan, uh, the Philippines, South Korea, uh, Indonesia? I mean, it's just astounding, uh, the presence that the U.S. has uh, in both the first and second island chains off the east coast of China. It's it's astounding that, that Americans would pretend that somehow they're just leaving China alone and the Chinese just insist on uh, antagonizing the Americans. This is a totally bizarre um, narrative uh, for anyone who, who who follows the reality at all. But at the same time, it's, it's also true that China just simply does, it's not going to have the wealth and the population to forward a serious threat, uh, unless there really is a true economic collapse, which would drive the country to, or drive the regime to a, a situation of true desperation. And then they might double down on even a truly awful and destructive war that cannot be controlled. And that would be a bad situation. However, uh, I, as I've said, I just don't see evidence of a major implosion of the Chinese economy right now. And of course, kind of the, the tip of the spear for Chinese uh, international expansion of their influence has been taking a, a soft hand approach um, relative to military bases and the like, whereas America has become more militant and aggressive in terms of both the imposition of values in foreign markets, um, former, uh, foreign political environments. Um, you know, we've obviously seen the way that the dollar has been weaponized against actors um, that have not towed the Western line on a variety of things, um, you know, breaking of contracts and things like that, which is going to be a great erosion of kind of rule of law dynamics that has always served um, America well in the past or the, the West in general in the past. Um, so this is why you see, you know, Belt and Road initiatives and Chinese investment in places like Africa and South America. Now, again, re read the fine print of those contracts. You know, um, it, certainly there is a, a you know, a price to pay for accepting that uh, foreign, uh, for accepting that Chinese investment, but you know, America, China has has succeeded at growing its international reputation um, by providing things of value um, rather than just moving troops around the world. It's not going to say that there isn't a military dynamic and, and ambitions underpinning some of that, um, you know, but they have kind of helped fill the void in certain areas where uh, American investment has been more. Uh, uh, military focused in nature, um, and of, of course, within the internal, the, the immigration issue with the labor shortage. A lot of the ways that China is seeking to solve this is by moving people from less industrial parts of the country into cities and things like that. So there is a lot of internal migration 
um, you know, being used as a way of making up for some of that aging population, you tend to have more decadent uh, lifestyles in the cities, which creates different dynamics um, within a country as diverse as China from an economic uh, perspective. Um, but it's, it's also, when we think about some of the current economic issues, we had an article uh, a couple weeks ago by Peter St. Ange. Um, his perspective on China is always very fascinating. He's someone who has taught throughout Asia. And he was someone who I remember from conversations at uh, Rothbard Village back in 2015. He was a fellow in 2014 and stayed in Auburn for um, uh, an additional year. So I got to, to talk with him. He was someone who was very bullish on China in 2015 because of dynamics like the savings rates and things like that. And he has taken a, a big turn with, against some of the more handed policies of Xi, which includes, again, being far more ad adversarial with some of the more um, private, truly innovative um, and successful companies within China, the you know, Jack Ma being chased out of Alibaba, um, perhaps the most obvious example there. Again, it's going to be interesting to see if there is a pivot there with some of the stresses out there. But his article on uh, China enters the doom loop kind of identified several stresses that China is facing right now. One of the biggest ones is with, given the uh, Chinese economic model being so um, reliant upon uh, manufacturing and, and exporting goods across uh, the world, these kind of growing political tensions, um, which, which are, far, are fairly modern, right? You know, before Trump, um, you know, there was, you know, while there might have been anxiety within the working population about jobs going to China or you know, talking about, you know, inferior Chinese goods or whatever, sort of a folk um, concern about China, which has always existed with any sort of rising global power. You know, the, the concern, you know, back in the 80s was, you know, Japanese cars and the like, right? So there's always been this, this dynamic of, you know, just kind of folk concerns about foreign goods. Um, but prior to Trump, there was sort of global, you know, uh, enthusiasm for bringing China further into the economic fold, um, you know, the Yuan being... Uh, added to the IMF's uh, basket of currencies and the like. Um, but given this change in geopolitical pressure um, from both the US and Europe, um, that has led to a massive decrease in exports um, to the uh, United States and Europe. Um, uh, Chinese uh, uh, imports uh, have also fallen kind of with those broader trade tensions there. And this is all, again, all kind of a, eating away at some of the foundations um, that the Chinese economy has been propped up on um, for quite some time. It's going to be interesting to see whether this is a, um, you know, is this a blip um, kind of resulting from, you know, particularly um, China's closeness with Russia and the Ukraine situation there. Uh, but he also highlights, again, some of the problems that we are seeing with large developers. We had Evergrande um, have issues several years ago. I believe they're now officially in, in bankruptcy now. Um, County Garden, uh, a country garden, which is another uh, developer much larger than Evergrande, um, they're having major, major issues. Again, all this goes back to the shadow banking sector, um, which again, just understanding the size of this shadow banking sphere, I think is important just to put in perspective. It's about, you know, estimates have it about $3 trillion, um, the, the total size of the Chinese shadow banking market, which is roughly the size of uh, England's GDP. Um, so it's a major, major factor within um, not, just, not just the Chinese economy, but you know, we, with, with an international scale. I mean, this is very, very significant. Um, and again, we, we've seen, again, if, if you have an Austrian understanding of the role that, again, the, the, the expansion of fiduciary media, the expansion of, cre of, of credit, 
um, you know, the role that it plays in malinvestment, which can Ghost Cities being, I, I think, a good example of that. Um, there's additional elements in terms of moral hazard and corruption. There are nepotism issues with politically connected figures. Um, you know, their sons and, and daughters being placed into high uh, valued positions as kind of a, a necessary part of doing business with certain uh, industries that the uh, Chinese Communist Party has a higher amount of influence on. Um, you know, there, there's all of these dynamics that um, have been building um, to, you know, contribute to these, these additional problems, again, the demographic one being uh, an important one, that these concerns very much, you know, they, they, they are worth noting, but again, this does not mean that we're going to see the complete destruction of the Chinese economy anytime soon. It simply means that, um, you know, there, it, it is going to be a, a change. And again, it's, it's going to create additional stress to the Chinese Communist Party. And, you know, there has been a break in norms within the CCP in much the way that we've seen in other parts of the world. Xi um, expanding, um, you know, his, his control, um, you know, now essentially being president for life and the like. So these, these, these breakdowns in political norms that we see in the U.S. and the West, they are also being reflected into China. And again, what made China rich in the first place has been the differences between the Chinese model and the modern Western model. And you know, the, the ironic thing is that while, again, for all of the, the concerns that America has, again, on both the right and the left, about you know, being more like China in many ways, it is China becoming more like the West that is really sowing the seeds for these issues that they are, that they are having right now. Well, it seems that one thing that we that you don't hear much about anymore is that the yuan is going to replace the dollar as the global currency. I haven't, uh, I don't hear much of that anymore because that's just so obviously uh, <laughs> not going to happen uh, unless China somehow uh, makes turns its money into some sort of hard money, which the yuan is clearly not, uh, as you've touched on a few minutes ago in terms of monetary policy. Uh, there's nothing free market about China, and China it, it does makes all the same mistakes that the West makes in terms of its central banking. Um, they've recently reduced interest rates. Their central bank reduced interest rates in an effort to basically goose consumption to get the economy going. They have to employ capital controls because they know they, they don't have faith in their currency because they know it of its inherent weaknesses uh, compared to uh, far more reliable Western currencies, fiat as they are. And so everything that fails in Western economies fails in China and vice versa, right? Economic law is not different in China than it is in the West. So if you have fiat money that you inflate too much, it's going to be a problem. Uh, you're manipulating interest rates. You're engaging in industrial policy, which China certainly does, and which the United States seems to be leaning toward in recent years. We've run some articles on Mises.org about how terrible industrial policy is. This is where basically the government just decides these are the industries we're going to subsidize, and we think our, go our economy should be centered around these particular industries. It's a terrible idea. Uh, it's a type of central planning, and it fails in the West. It fails in China. So... Uh, so much of what we hear about China is contradictory, where where they'll tell you one minute that X Y Z is a terrible economic policy in America, 
but those horrible Chinese, they're doing the same thing, but somehow the Chinese economy is doing great. Uh, and, and so this, this I either is willful ignorance about China, or it means they don't understand how economies work, or they believe that nonsense about how Chinese politicians are all geniuses or somehow have managed to suspend economic law. So uh, these are just some of the things that infect uh, the narrative over China right now. And I think we just need to take a much more nuanced view and maybe just be less hyster hysterical about the geopolitical situation, which I think is driving a lot of this mythology about uh, Chinese power and Chinese growth. Uh, and really just ignoring some of the economic realities. But with that, we should probably wrap up this issue here of Radio Rothbard. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode, so we'll see you then.